Coming up next is Upstate's HealthLink on air. On tonight's program, the importance of touch in the treatment of cancer patients. What they found is if they treated them like human beings, that's what mattered. Whether they were getting poked with an IV, whether they were just talking to them. Plus, the impact of both artificial and natural sweeteners on your health. It's a chemical compound, okay, that has been changed to have very little amount of carbohydrates or sugar in them. So they're basically an alternative for people who are either trying to control their carbohydrate intake or control their weight. And we talk about the art of pediatric anesthesia. The challenges of being a pediatric anesthesiologist, uh, that their anatomy and physiology are vastly different from adults. Our checkup from the neck up and a selection from our healing muse. And they're all coming up right after the news. Upstate Medical University's Health Link on Air, your weekly dose of information about health and medical issues affecting Central New Yorkers from the region's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Linda Cohen. On tonight's show, we learn the truth about all sweeteners, both artificial and natural, and how they impact your health. Plus, the art of pediatric anesthesia, its strengths, and the concerns surrounding its use. But first, the importance of touch in the treatment of cancer patients. Well, a diagnosis of cancer brings with it a great deal of stress. And even with a hopeful prognosis and treatment protocol, the strains of undergoing treatment, and chemotherapy in particular, are numerous. We'll hear with more on all of this and what seems to make a difference. Our Dr. Melanie Kalman, she's a professor of the, at the College of Nursing, and Catherine Kitty Leonard, a nurse practitioner specializing in oncology. Welcome to you both. Thanks for coming in. Thanks. Thank you. So, Kitty, let me start with you. You've worked a great deal with patients who have cancer, and you've also been involved in this, a study most recently to take a look at how patients diagnosed with cancer and who are receiving IV chemotherapy respond to touch. Why do this? As a nurse practitioner and actually as a staff nurse uh, working with patients, I became very sensitive to the numerous um, examinations, procedures, and the emotional uncertainty that a lot of these people undergo. And I was very curious to know how um, intimidating or how soothing uh, personal touch could be. Um, I have a background uh, as a massage therapist, although I do not practice professionally at this time. Um, and so it uh, gave me a sensitivity for the amount of um, connection that could be uh, either communicated by touch or um, in some cases my assumption was that there would be a lot of alienation in the sense of very uh, scary procedures, very personal examinations, uh, the numbers of, of IVs, and what we could call invasive procedures that are done. And there weren't a lot of good studies on this as I went through my master's program. And so I approached Dr. Kalman uh, to devise a method to actually talk to people themselves, patients themselves, and, and um, really get the data from the mouths of the people who are going through the experience. So Dr. Kalman, you as a professor in the School of Nursing have a lot of research background. Mm -hmm. what, what is the nature of this kind of study? I mean, I think that uh, mm -hmm. Kitty already alluded to the fact that it was more of a qualitative kind right. of study. Help us understand what we mean by qualitative research. So qualitative research, as opposed to quantitative research, looks at the experience of those who are undergoing the phenomena we're looking at. Uh, you do qualitative when not much is known about the subject. And as Kitty said, she had done a lit review, and there wasn't much about how it felt to be touched over and over again when you're in the hospital and when you're getting chemo. 
so we felt we should do a qualitative study, and these are give, gives you more breadth than just adding up numbers. So in other words, the metrics weren't as important as kind of the experiential, yes. mm-hmm. more yes. shades of gray, yes. more of a sense of kind of the, the larger picture, perhaps. Yes, the, the shades of gray were where the bulk of the data lay. Mm-hmm. And we've uh, identified a particular methodology um, within the qualitative realm called phenomenology that basically takes the experiences of people in relatively unstructured interviews. Um, We had some questions that were common from one interview to another, but we basically let the interviewee um, guide the process of what they wanted, what was important for them to talk about within this topic. So this was part of your, at this point, your um, nurse practitioner master's yes. program, mm-hmm. which sounds like very fascinating and interesting opportunity for you to, to uh, undertake that kind of research. Well, I had, uh, I had kind of hatched the idea And what I found was that the Upstate program was one of the few nurse practitioner programs in in the area that would allow me to actually undertake a thesis and have help in conducting original research. It's interesting, too, that strikes me about choosing the qualitative methodology that while it's also perhaps very illuminating in terms of this broader picture or telling more of the story, it's also a little murky. So it's in terms of it not being hard and, you know, fast numbers or, or, you know, or data. And so it also requires some interpretation, I would think, as well. Is that true? It's truly. It is true, but it's, it's, I wouldn't call it murky. Um, I believe that an experience such as undergoing chemotherapy is you, you can't break it down to specific variables. That's not what the human experience is. So we're looking at something much broader, what they're looking at. And you listen to these interviews and you hear the same things over and over. They're different stories, but the same themes come out. And that's what we're looking at in qualitative research. Now, over at the college, we also have a lot of nurse researchers who do quantitative. We have both quantitative and qualitative. We're really at a good spot now with research. If you're just joining us, you're listening to HealthLink on Air. I'm Linda Cohen along with Dr. Melanie Kalman and uh, Catherine Kitty Leonard, and we're talking about chemotherapy patients and their experience of touch during a treatment regimen for for cancer. So let's start with who participated. What we did after approaching the uh, Upstate Institutional Review Board and um, getting approval uh, for the research study was to... um, put out a, uh, an approved informational flyer to um, the different centers in the area as well as in other states, and um, then received uh, referrals from uh, practitioners, uh, nurses, who would say, I have a person who indicated that they were interested in participating, and then I would contact them and confirm that. Uh, We, of course, prior to doing any of the interviewing, um, reviewed in detail a consent um, that went through, you know, how the the data would be used. Then the interviews were approximately about an hour in length. Overall, uh, with the qualitative research, it is a small number of people because you look at each one of the interviews as you're um, completing the transcript and look at the numbers of themes that come out and you continue to enroll people until you find that there is uh, no more new theme, new information that's coming out. Mm -hmm. So overall we had uh, 13 participants which were, um, excuse me, no, I'm sorry, 11 participants. It was eight women and three men. So what were the themes that emerged? 
I mean, that's to me mm-hmm. the crucial issue. Yes. You say that that it was somewhat thematic, and that there was almost a universal quality to it. I mean, not that it was single, but but the fact that there were multiple themes. What were the themes, Dr. Kama? They talked about uh, being touched in the healthcare setting being touched by friends, how friends and families touched, changed while they were undergoing chemotherapy. And the third one, Kitty? Um, It was actually um, within, it was called uh, intentional use of touch. In other words, um, this would be a more, um, say, intimate setting that was either, um, say, bed baths or assistance in personal care and bathing or even massage therapy where the person doing the touching had a relationship with the uh, participant that was intended. They're not a family member, not family member intimate touch in the sense of sexual relationships or deep friendships, but this is more a person who is professionally connected but intending to use touch in, you know, the realm that would provide comfort. So overall, though, it strikes me there must have been kind of an overarching Absolutely. theme. And what, what, and the biggest theme that came out of this that actually um, is even larger than the themes, the smaller themes that were broken out, is that, um, and it surprised me quite a bit. I mean, let me back up to say my expectation, which I had to work very hard not to interject my bias either into the interviews or in um, analysis, d- analysis mm-hmm. of the themes. And this is where Dr. Kalman also helped to help verify that the analysis was true to the interview and not uh, developing a bias that I thought people were going to say. Well, when people are touching me in a friendly way, in a kind way, um, this is great, but boy, when they come at me to do an invasive procedure or we have to go to the scanner Mm -hmm. or we have to have an IV inserted, that's scary and that touch is hard. And that was absolutely not the case at all. So in other words, let me let me restate this so it's clear because yes. I'm trying to make sure I understand. What you're saying is you would have thought mm-hmm. that it, 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 a lot of the response by the patient would have been determined by the nature of the touch. In other words, yes. the circumstances around the touch. Yes. And and also maybe who was doing the touching? Right. Um, that it would, if it were someone unknown to them or somebody right. who was doing a procedure, it would be one way versus if yes. it was just someone gently, uh, a friend gently, you know, touching, stroking their arm or something, it would be different. So, but yes, what they found is if they treated them like human beings, <laughs> that's what mattered. Whether they were getting poked with an IV, whether they were just talking to them. And that came through no matter what group they were talking about. I found it interesting that people found that women backed off. Women who might have been big huggers before now didn't touch them as much. And men who were more standoffish now hugged. And that came across through everybody that those roles change. That's very, very interesting. So, but what do you, so is the bottom line, I mean, what was the bottom line here through it mm-hmm. all? Though? Yes, the bottom, the real bottom line is that it is the relationship between whether it's the family member, the massage therapist, the nurse, the physician, whoever is, you know, doing the touching, it is the quality of the relationship. And it's the quality of the relationship that regards the other person as a whole individual, as a complete and healthy individual underneath whatever disease is expressed. So that it's Mm -hmm. this notion of treating the individual with a certain level of dignity. Completely. And respect for their boundaries, so to speak. Yes. In a sense, if we were to talk about um, the clinical situation, it would be... The importance is that um, I 
as a nurse practitioner, say, forge a relationship that regards the person as a total whole individual who has come to me because they happen to have, you know, issues with a disease, and the disease is not that person. So we forge a relationship based on that. They have come to me because I or the physician they're seeing has a certain level of expertise, but we are both two complete and whole people within that. And our patients pick up on that within 30 seconds, how you approach them. So it's almost like respecting their humanity. Exactly. As opposed to that they are a patient who requires a protocol, something to do. Or a disease. They are a disease, yes. This is incredibly important and helpful information. My guests have been Dr. Melanie Kalman. She's a professor in the School of Nursing at Upstate Medical University, and Catherine Kitty Leonard, a nurse practitioner specializing in oncology. Next up, the truth about sweeteners and how they impact your health. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Upstate's Health Inc. on air. Linda Cohen here with you. Well, managing calories and choosing the best foods don't always go hand in hand. And artificial sweeteners, such as sucralose and aspartame, commonly referred to as Splenda and Equal, they offer a zero-calorie alternative to regular sugar, and they're found in many foods and drinks in this country. But according to upper-level management at Pepsi, aspartame is the number one reason that consumers are now dropping diet soda. And PepsiCo and others have begun to replace aspartame and diet Pepsi with um, Splenda. So what are the real health concerns related to sweeteners, both natural and artificial? And is this new replacement any healthier? Well, here with more on all of this is Maureen Franklin. She's a registered dietitian for Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Maureen. Thanks for, so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. I, I want to get the real skinny on this. I mean, no pun intended, <laughs> because there's so much talk back and forth about artificial sweeteners. Let's begin by helping us understand what we mean when we say, you know, um, saccharin, aspartame, and 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 Splenda, oh, equal in Splenda. What are these, and what what exactly... Well, they when mean? they first came out, I know with Splenda, one of the things they tried to advertise is they advertised it as sugar. But basically, it's a, it's a chemical compound, okay, that has been changed to have very little amount of carbohydrates or sugar in them. So they're basically an alternative for people who are either trying to control their carbohydrate intake or control their weight. But they are zero calories. Zero calories, yes. Mm-hmm. Minimal, they might have one gram of carbohydrates, some of them, depending on how much you use. So what would be the benefits of using artificial? sweeteners? Well, the benefits would be, again, if someone is trying to lose their weight um, and they are trying to watch their total calorie intake and they were maybe a high sugar user and in their coffees or teas and they still like that taste. Or the other one is someone who is a diabetic and is still trying to watch their carbohydrate intake. And instead of having a can of soda, which would be an enormous amount of carbs, they might want to have a diet soda, which maybe give them one gram of carbs. So they are more diabetes-friendly in that sense. I think they're more diabetes-friendly. I think they're also used for people in terms of weight control and, and someone who's saying, I just don't want to have those extra calories coming from a sugar-sweetened beverage. How about the issue of tooth decay? Um, Does I that think play that's, much of a role? Um, I don't know, and I, I haven't heard that much in terms of it, and I don't know if it's looked at it. Um, the one thing I would be concerned is in terms of like the caramel and the cola-type-flavored beverages in terms of um, the wear and tear in terms of on, in, on your um, teeth. That would be an issue more in terms of it. Um, sometimes we do get into it with the different types of caramel sodas on a more medical part in terms of phosphorus and those kinds of things. Right, but the idea being that if you're using an artificial sweetener, they're not. it's not the sugar it's sitting the on your sugar teeth. Sitting on your teeth, right. But I think with anything, it's the same thing. There's something sitting on your teeth, so you still need to brush your teeth, and we still need to make sure that people get a good water intake, which is my real concern for people, making sure you drink enough water. Yeah, always. So what are the hazards? I mean, this has always been bandied about. I mean, one, obviously, there's no nutritional value to it, you know, but are there other things that, you know, there's been talk about the phosphorus, you just alluded to that, um, 
and this whole notion, does it increase your sweet tooth because they're sweeter than sugar? Well, there's been a lot of talk about that, and I think patients that I deal with and clients that I deal with have that idea, and it might be, and I'm not sure if it's a placebo effect in terms of that. Um, I haven't seen any really good research that's saying if you use a sugar substitute that it's going to make you crave more sweets so you will eat more. I think sometimes it kind of gives us a leeway of saying, well, I didn't use those calories, so, oh, I can have these calories here. And I think sometimes we tend to underestimate the calories or what we're eating. So to me, it's more, hmm, is it giving me a license to have a More nice psychological. Dessert? Psychological, I'll, I'll have the yes. chocolate. I'll have the chocolate cake, cake with the Diet with Pepsi. With the Diet Pepsi, right. <laughs> right. <laughs> I saved some calories, which they did, so uh, it really depends on what works for each person. But there are some side effects I've noticed in, in researching for this a little bit that some with cancer and depression, MS and, and lupus, they, they've, talk in, they've talked about some um, impact of these, um, like mood swings, headaches, fatigue, dizziness. Have you seen those? I've seen them, and there's a lot more information. Once the internet has been with us, um, there's been an explosion in terms of people saying, stay away from this, don't do this. Um, the FDA basically has said there's no convincing evidence in terms of a cause and effect between these sweeteners and a negative health effect. A lot of people disagree with the FDA, I know, but that's the information that we have out there in good scientific studies. I think it's very based on an individual. So if you know that your body does not react to that, then that is your own body. But I think that's an important concept that people have to know, how does my body react to it? Um, I've used sugar substitute. I've known uh, diabetic patients who have used it, no adverse effects for them. I have other clients who have said, I tried it once, I got a headache, you know, those kinds of things. So I think there's, there, is, there are side effects. I think they're individual. Um, is it a good thing to say blanket and never use it? I don't think so because I think it's an alternative for some clients. And, and even for pregnant women, it's been approved. Pregnant women, it's been approved. And, again, that's the thing in terms of they've looked at the studies, and when they've done the research on it, it is mega, mega amounts that would have to get to that level um, that would be harmful. Potentially harmful. Yeah. And even that isn't proven. Right. Like it's at one point, uh, one thing I remember was like 62 packets a day. And so it's an astronomical number. For I think that some of this harkens back to when saccharin way back mm -hmm. was somehow implicated with bladder cancer yes. or something like that. But mm -hmm. I don't think that's actually ever really been proven. Been proven, right. And it's still on the market. So again, it's offering choices. And I think that's what the marketplace is doing is trying to offer clients out there choices that they like and that's where some of the newer ones have come that are more natural and I want to get to those mm -hmm. in just a minute. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's Health Link on air. I'm Linda Cohen, along with registered dietitian Maureen Franklin. We're talking about the pros and cons of artificial sweeteners in your diet. We're also going to talk a little bit more about other sugar alternatives. And I was kind of shocked that these things called sugar alcohols, and there's one group called Novel Sweeteners. Help us understand, what are sugar alcohols to well, start? Well, sugar alcohols are used in some products that are, we used to call them dietetic products. Now they're used in things where the labeling or the marketing might say low glycemic index, net carbohydrate. So again, it's a marketing type um, trend that I see. What I get concerned with is people look at that and they don't look at the whole food label, which is one of my basic things I think people need to look at. When they're looking at that, they need to know that it is a type of carbohydrate. Okay, It's metabolized differently in your body and your system can react to it. Um, heavy doses of it too much can cause GI effects for some people in terms of it. But some people, it's used to from the marketing, make the product look like it's lower in calories. And you can find them in a lot of processed lot of foods, mm -hmm. chocolate, candy, frozen yep. desserts, chewing gum, toothpaste, a lot of different things. And typically, a, a lot of it is found in sugar-free little quotes around it in terms of it. So people go, oh, it's sugar-free. And then they look, and or they don't look, and it says sorbitol or mannitol. And again, the way it's listed. So people go, oh, I can have all I want of this. It's like, no, still has calories, still has carbs still is things that you need to be aware of. So it's just a little less caloric? Is that the idea? It can be, yeah. Um, in terms of, like, if you looked on a label, there's a little trick that we can we teach diabetic patients in terms of the amount, and you can use it. it you can use half a half of it. It's absorbed. It's got to do with the absorption in terms of your body. So it helps people to a point, but it can, if it's overused and abused, it's not a good thing. So in the same way as the, the artificial sweeteners, it would be helpful in weight control and in with people who are diabetic. Right. 
-hmm. Now, what are these novel sweeteners? I mean, stevia is a name that keeps coming up. What exactly is it? Stevia is actually a um, natural plant, okay, that has a high intense natural sweetness of it. And that is new in the marketplace recently, probably within, I'd say, the last four or five years, we're starting to see more of it. So again, that is a natural way is how they're advertising of people to use, which can be good, but the problem is it's kind of like with everything else. What is in that product? If it's not just stevia, are there other chemical additives and things that are in there, which I think people need to be aware of um, because it could say stevia, but how much stevia is in that product? So again, are you looking at it from a natural standpoint and saying, oh, my sweetener is coming from something natural? That is a very high intense sweetener, stevia, and it doesn't affect as much of the carbohydrate as, say, if someone used natural honey. And people go, oh, well, honey's natural. And it is, but it's still a carbohydrate. So it's basically, yes, yeah, so basically there are calories attached even for, to stevia, so it's, no, it's less calorie. A lot less in terms of it. So definitely, it's more what's in the stevia to help it, what other additives are in there as far as in making it a sugar substitute or a sugar. Um, a, a different type of sugar source. But that one, no. It's more the honey, the molasses, those kinds of things that people have to be aware of just because it says natural and it might have a health benefit, you know, bees and these kinds of things that people talk about. Those are still a source of sugar. I want to talk more about the natural sweeteners in just one second, but isn't it important to remember that when you look at a product and it says sugar-free, that doesn't necessarily mean calorie-free. Calorie-free, and it's not carbohydrate-free. Because often, mm -hmm. I know these sugar-free cookies or candies or what have you, and you think, oh, sugar-free, basically. So it's not, I mean, that's the whole idea of it being sugar-free and therefore a weight control product. It isn't always. Right. If people looked on the label, and so they could, on the label, it could say zero sugars. So if people go, oh, I'm just looking at zero sugars, okay, but you need to look at the entire label. What's the total carbohydrate? What's the fiber? What's everything? So it might say zero sugars, but you might go up to carbs, and it still might have 17, 18 grams of carb. So very important for people. Now getting to the naturals, because the natural things like honey, molasses, um, even agave, I guess, is considered mm -hmm. a natural sugar. Are they any better to use than all of these other things or even the other uh, sugar substitutes? Well, the difference is the sugar substitutes are going to have a decreased amount of carbs because they are a substitute. Honey versus brown sugar, white sugar, agave, um, high fructose corn syrup, they are all a sugar source. So they're still going to have that carbohydrate value. So that's what people need to determine. What is in my food? What do I want in my food? And why is it in there? Am I getting it because someone substituted white sugar and put honey in and labeled it natural? And I think, oh, it's natural. Well, you're still getting a source of sugar. I think that's really the key. I mean, the bottom line, well, first of all, let me back up for one second. There are issues, there are potential health hazards with some of these natural sugars, too. For example, hasn't honey in some ways been linked to botulism toxin? And uh, with honey, you definitely don't want to give it to children after uh, up to a certain age. So again, you're yeah, there's other things. So when people talk about the bad things in terms of sugar substitutes, there are other things you need to be aware of. Even the natural of, sugars. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So the bottom line, I guess, in all of this, what is the bottom line? Is it is it a matter of moderation? And is it an issue, I mean, would you prefer someone to have less, a smaller amount of natural sugar, even if it's white sugar, than um, any of these substitutes? I mean, what do you tell your patients? And one last thing along that line is, all the the buzz around high fructose corn syrup, is it any worse than plain sugar? Again, it's still a source of carbohydrate. It's a different form. It's a cheap, you know, it's like corn syrup. It's a cheap form in terms of a flavoring agent in terms of it. Um, there's been a lot of, oh, scare about it because I'm getting high fructose corn syrup. So then some companies are switching to sugar or cane sugar. It's still sugar. It's a still a sugar source. It's still a carbohydrate source. So when you ask me the bottom line, I think the most important thing is every individual needs to find out why are they using that product. Do they want that product because they are looking at their carbohydrates or their diabetic level or they want to cut some calories? Are they looking at honey because that's the way they want their sugar source? They want it to be from a natural source. And there's nothing wrong with that. But every person, I think, needs to know why do I want this product? I think it's important for them to use the products that are out there. There's some great products out there. There's some not-so-great products, but that is up to each individual. If I choose to use a diet soda, great. 
why am I choosing to use it? If I choose to use honey, also great. But that person, I think, needs to be the one to look at that. Why am I using that? But I also think they need to look at my bottom line is I still think food labels are the best thing out there. And we're getting to the point of we're going to get some recommendations from the dietary um, guidelines. And the bottom line is you basically you want to, ch if you're ch eating sugar or sugar substitutes, moderation really is the Always key. Always moderation. In any case. Mm -hmm. And maybe we should eat some more fruits and vegetables. That's <laughs> along the biggest line. We should get some good water in and we should eat, uh, you know, if you're going to have something, get it from your fruits and vegetables. Definitely. Well said. My guest has been registered dietitian Maureen Franklin. Thanks again so much for coming <laughs> in and sharing your me. wisdom. I'm Linda Cohen. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. Hi, I'm psychologist Dr. Rich O'Neill with this week's checkup from the neck up. Which boss do I serve? Or from conflict, conflict, conflict into making magical moments or M cubed? Well, folks, if you're like me, you're scheduled with not a lot of what us psychologists and researcher types call degrees of freedom or in regular English, wiggle room. My to-dos specifically, and in no particular order for those of you bossy listeners who might feel you have dibs on my time, a full-time job. And in my wiggle room spare time for Upstate, I write checkup from the neckups and tape commercials in various newscast spots as a psychology expert and do my reporter bit on the local PBS WCNY TV show Cycle of Health. Check it out Thursday p.m. at 8 and Sunday night 6.30. Fun stuff for sure, but time eaters. And I'm a husband, at least on days when my wife says I qualify for that honorific. And I'm a dad, although some days the kids say I'm more of a talking dumb, shamefully dressed, even walking weird blot on the landscape. <laughs> and as some of you know, I've been the caretaker son of a 98-year-old mom with Alzheimer's, recently passed away. Although I've discovered that saying goodbye to mom put me in the new role of mom's money distributor, arguing, or rather explaining, of course, to the suddenly very interested in all things mom relatives, why the guy who did the work is getting more than those who did less. Hmm. Hint from Heloise's cousin, Dr. Neckup. Clarify these money proclamations when the bequeather is still able to articulate said rationale, or if it's too late, hire a lawyer to referee. While the mantra, greed is good, is humming along below all the friendly family conversations. If you don't, you'll probably find out the hard way why lawyers get paid the big bucks. Anyway, you get the picture. I'm busy and sometimes stressed, and since I'm a bit heavy on the worker bee-itis, off by myself, toiling alone, I'm also trying to get my merit badges in friendlier and chilling. Long story short, one way I de-stress is by tuning out all my conflicting inside and outside my head bosses and moving the bod. By running and biking and heart-thumping, no interruption, create those pain-killing, mood-lifting endorphin excursions. So the other day, after earning good hubby points by negotiating for the time in advance, I'm striding roadside at just the pace for my aging athlete training plan, which will get me back at the Pam and Rich homestead on time, punctuality never being my strong suit, but necessary for the good hubby star. I am in the zone. And then, interruption alert, interruption alert, a car coming towards me with the passenger's arm sticking out the window, index finger extending whilst he hollers, Hey, bud, got a sec? Got a sec. My mind says, what about the on-time award and the gold star for the endorphin training? Don't stop, Rich. Don't stop. Conflict. But the loudest voice says, Rich, chill. Be friendly. Okay. We're looking for such and such a road. Never heard of it. Hmm. What's there? Garage sale. Oh, hmm. 
Any cross street listed in the ad or landmarks? Hmm, let me see. Tick-tock, tick-tock, my heart rate settles. Breathing calms, no zone, no more. Nope, no cross streets or landmarks, but oh, oh, I bet. And pretty soon my head is in through the window. <laughs> I'm pointing to the street on the map. You follow this road and make a right here and a quick left and then another. I'm chilling like a villain, a friendly villain. <laughs> Boy, my kids would hate me saying chilling like a villain. <laughs> oh, okay. I see. Okay, thank you very much for the directions. And then the payoff with a laugh. He says, and by the way, you've got the cleanest fingernails I have ever seen. <laughs> we are laughing. Thanks again. Endorphin surge from fun and laughs. Who would have thunk it? I've got the cleanest fingernails ever seen. <laughs> yeah, M-cubed, making magic moments. One fingernail at a time, M-cubed. Mixing heart-healthy running with heart-healthy friendly with life-healthy flexibility. M-cubed, gotta remember that, making magic moments. I'm Dr. Richard Michael, spelled with three M's, O'Neill. Thanks for tuning in. Coming up next, the art of pediatric anesthesia and the concerns surrounding its use. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen here with you. Well, when a child has an illness, injury, or a disease that necessitates surgery or a painful procedure, anesthesia is required. And who best to oversee the delivery of the anesthesia than a pediatric anesthesiologist? We'll hear with more on all of this is Dr. Joseph Resti, Assistant Professor of Anesthesiology at Upstate Medical University, specializing in pediatric in pediatric anesthesiology. Welcome, Dr. Resty. Mm -hmm. Thanks for coming in. Uh, thanks for inviting me, Linda. So let's help us, our listeners, understand what do we mean when we use the phrase pediatric anesthesiologist? What do we mean? So after finishing uh, your routine training in uh, anesthesiology, some anesthesiologists elect to become some specialists in pediatric anesthesiology um, and uh, because they want to care for children undergoing surgical procedures and other uh, tests uh, requiring anesthesia care. And so um, there are uh, thousands of pediatric anesthesiologists uh, uh, throughout the country, including uh, six uh, uh, trained uh, anesthesiologists here at Upstate Medical University. So the bottom line is that your job as a pediatric anesthesiologist is really to for, is to really you know, focus on children, both in terms of pedi in terms of surgical procedures, but also many, many other procedures that, that might require some anesthesia for the child, and yep. pain management included. Absolutely. As you can imagine, uh, children need anesthesia for things that adults wouldn't need anesthesia for. For example, MRIs and uh, other tests where children uh, do not sit still for those. Uh, being a parent of two children, I know, <laughs> I know toddlers can, well. <laughs> cannot sit still for anything, including a 45-minute MRI. And so uh, our scope of practice throughout the hospital, which is a little bit different from adult anesthesiologists who mostly focus on uh, surgical procedures and other uh procedures that have painful pain associated with them, we uh, we deliver care for lots of children throughout the and hospitals. And I think it's a key point that's always made when we talk about children is that they're really not just small adults. Yep, absolutely, absolutely. They, uh, uh, the challenges of being a pediatric anesthesiologist, uh, that their anatomy and physiology are vastly different from adults, um, and they're not small adults. It's something that's very popular in the pediatric world uh, to say that. Um, and uh, from, you know, it can be challenging from uh, taking care of tiny two and three pound babies for anesthesia from just dealing with the entire um, uh, family dynamic of a child who needs to have surgery and anesthesia. I think having a trained pediatric anesthesiologist to uh, uh, deal with all of those challenges is very, very important. So you say trained. So let's be more specific. You mentioned that after you finished an anesthesiology or anesthesia residency or fellowship program, 
what specific training do you get to become a pediatric anesthesiologist? So you'll do a separate uh, pediatric anesthesiology fellowship at a children's hospital somewhere in the United States, which is accredited um, and uh, actually has a separate board certification as well, which is newer in the last five years. Um, so there's a, a now board-certified pediatric anesthesiologist within the United States. And it's just very important, I think, when you take your child to have a procedure, that uh, especially if it's a major procedure, uh, that you want to make sure that everyone involved in that patient's care is uh, as highly trained as possible, and now we have a separate board for pediatric anesthesiologists to ensure that. How wide-ranging is this, though, with throughout the country? I mean, do we have sufficient numbers of, pe of pediatric anesthesiologists to care for children? Yeah, that's a that great question. Setting. I think that uh, uh, every children's hospital, including our children's hospital in Syracuse, New York, does have dedicated pediatric anesthesiologists. Uh, it's very common, uh, and actually almost a majority of children having procedures will have them in ambulatory surgery settings with non-specialty um, uh, uh, non uh, trained uh, pediatric anesthesiologists. I think in those uh, cases, it's appropriate for a general anesthesiologist to take care of those children because they're healthy otherwise undergoing minor procedures. But once you get to extremes of age as far as newborn babies and small children um, and major procedures or children with major coexisting diseases, it's very, very important to have a specialty trained pediatric anesthesiologist. So that leads me to the whole concept of what the range is. You really do start with almost right. ne neonates. I yep, mean, absolutely. basically you said one and two pound babies yep. who may have been prematurely born all the way up to 18, 20 year olds. Yep, yep, yep. And sometimes our scope, uh, if the surgeons uh, take care of to uh, adults who uh, have pediatric type problems, uh, for example, or stemming uh, from pediatrics. Exactly. Uh, we'll take care of patients older than 18, but you're absolutely right that we'll take care of small babies uh, hours after birth uh, for surgical care um, uh, in, uh, uh, in uh, um, connection with our neonatal ICU over at Krauss uh, and the neonatologists over there. We all work together as a team to take care of these children. So it strikes me that there are very specific skill sets that you really have to acquire in addition to all the medical aspects of, of what your training is, in terms of handling children appropriately. As a father, you know this very well, especially of young children. Mm -hmm. So give me a sense of some of the things that you actually get involved in. I mean, I know you do complex medical problems of children and infants when surgery is involved, but how about, you know, in terms of, you know, making this, the environment feel more comfortable and safe and, of course, interacting, as you mentioned, with the very, very worried parents. Yeah, absolutely. I think that there's no higher level of anxiety for a parent other than when their child is going to undergo a surgical procedure. Uh, and it was one of the most daunting parts of my job when I started was having to, to uh, uh, work with these parents to help help with that. Um, it's easy for the children because we give them medicine to help them relax, but of course we can't do that for the parents. So right. it's, it's, a, it's a big challenge for us. Um, but it's a challenge that one thing that I love about my job and uh, uh, with the anxiety level so high for the parents, you really can't do anything but help them more. Um, and and I, I like to be able to leave uh, with the patient, head back to the operating room, and uh, have the parents have a smile on their face that their anxiety levels come down a little bit. That's a wonderful uh, goal. And it, yeah, and it's, and it's, a, it's, a, it's something that I pride myself in my practice that uh, the uh, I try to do every day. Um, it's a, it's a, a wonderful thing, yeah. Yeah, and especially, as you said, the anxiety level is so high, not only with the surgical aspects of the procedure, but also just putting a child under. Yeah, I would think parents yeah. would be anxious. Absolutely, and especially for more uh, low-risk procedures or things like MRIs that have little risk to the MRI, clearly the riskier portion of that is going to be the anesthetic, and uh, it's very common that uh, parents are more concerned about the anesthesia than they are about the surgery. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen, along with pediatric anesthesiologist Dr. Joseph Resti. We're talking about pediatric anesthesia, the needs, and the problems that can arise. Well, speaking of that, and the fact that surgery and anesthesia are really scary propositions for patients, especially those of very, I'm sorry, parents, and especially of those of very young patients, what are some of the hazards of anesthesia in children? Yeah. I think one of the biggest um, uh, topics that currently, and something that's gained a lot of headlines, recent articles in the New York Times, et cetera, has been the potential for uh, uh, Issues with brain development after exposure uh, to anesthesia to young infants and children. Um, there's uh, so the, what's the, what's the concern that somehow the the general anesthesia that's delivered interferes with the development or the, the progress in the developing brain of a young, very young infant. Exactly, exactly. Clearly our anesthesia medicines work on the brain, uh, which is how they work, and the concern is that are they interrupting or disrupting the uh, uh, nerve growth in the brain um, and having 
issues when the kids are older with uh, function in school, how they're learning, how they're performing in school. Um, but it's a very difficult issue to look at because kids who have anesthesia at young ages very often have a lot of other medical issues. So Comorbidities. It's, yeah, exactly. So it's not a perfectly separated uh, topic. Um, and uh, so we don't have perfect answers yet. Uh, there's current studies going on to try to figure this out a little more clearly, including a very exciting one that they just finished up. And now we're just waiting for the children to get older so they get to do that school testing, uh, those cognitive tests. Uh, and I think that'll give us a little more answers if our anesthesia exposure. Of course, the important thing to always keep in mind, and when I have this discussion with families, is that children are undergoing plastic surgery. Uh, most of the procedures that they are uh, scheduled for, especially as young uh, children, are necessary. And so we don't have much of an option other than to deliver the anesthesia care. In many uh, cases, it's, it's basically life-saving. Exactly, exactly. Things that can't wait for you know months or years so the kids get older and their brain development uh, is more complete. Um, so even though there's a lot of talk about this, our options are very limited. The kids need to have these procedures and need anesthesia. But to date, there are really no studies that that clearly show that there is a direct relationship that's, that, that's correct. between that's, brain damage or, or limitation of brain development and these anesthetics. That, that's aesthetics. correct. Every every single study has had some kind of uh, confounding variable that uh, uh, could you know shows that the anesthesia may or may not be linked to these problems later in life. Um, the current study that's going on is children, uh, when they're having anesthesia as a baby, are either going to have general anesthesia, which is the anesthesia where you're all the way to sleep, or what's called a regional anesthesia, which is an injection of numbing medicine that numbs the site of the procedure. And they've taken half the kids and given them general anesthesia and half this regional anesthesia. And what they're going to do in five years is test the children uh, to see how they do and to see if there's any differences. And otherwise, these two groups are exactly the same. So if there is a difference, really we would say it's to the anesthesia. If there's no difference, I think we can all safely say that at least one anesthetic exposure as a young infant uh, doesn't impact uh, impact cognitive development later in age. But as you pointed out, I mean, in this case, obviously, it's a, it's a controlled study, and it sounds like a well-designed study, but when you have youngsters who require life-saving surgery, it's usually because of some potentially congenital malformation or some, some other factor that could be co-occurring with some brain issues. Yep, and so it's really hard to tease out. But in, in this design, it sounds like you probably, they probably will get to exactly. some Exactly. And some on top answers. of just the, the medical comorbidities these kids uh, have to deal with at young ages, uh, you know, when infants come home and they're in these enriched environments where their children, their, their parents are reading them books and kids who are in the hospital a lot don't have those enriching environments. Exactly. And is that isol is that a factor enough to develop, uh, to, to affect their uh, uh, intellectual function later in life? So there's a lot of issues uh, that are very difficult to tease out. How about things like hypoxia or cardiovascular compromise? In other words, is there something about going under, apart from the brain issue, that could actually threaten the life of a small child. Yeah, absolutely. And again, this is why we have specialty trained pediatric anesthesiologists uh, that uh, children for lots of uh, reasons um, uh, are very fragile uh, compared to adults and uh, uh, that in, in, a, in really in a moment can have those kinds of disruptions that can be life-threatening. And so uh, it's very important to have pediatric anesthesiologists there and why our surgeons here at Upstate uh, only do procedures with our pediatric anesthesia team. Uh, it's they, they know that how, how important it is to the children. And that you're so well-trained in that, in that very specific environment. What kind of new frontiers do you think are, are presenting themselves for the field of pediatric anesthesiology? I read something that I thought was so interesting, and it sounds so sci-fi, this idea of actually doing fetal surgery, meaning doing surgical repair when a baby is actually within the womb. Mm -hmm. yep. And it would strike me that that could be an incredibly complex thing for the surgeon, but clearly also for the anesthesiologist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These, uh, these, these, these fetal surgery procedures are incredibly complex, requiring five or six different specialties of physicians during the procedure and planning from another half dozen group of uh, uh, physicians to say nothing about the nursing staff and everything else. Uh, and when, when these procedures are done, there's usually around 30 to 40 people in the operating room for what is a uh, usually about a quarter pound fetus, which is a, a kind of interesting because the patient is as small as they get. We don't have smaller <laughs> patients than those. Uh, and uh, the anesthesia care is very challenging because 
truly during those uh, we have uh, both the, the mom and the uh, uh, the fetus to care about, and uh, uh, they're very exciting procedures and something that is uh, becoming more mainstream, which is uh, weird to say out of my mouth because uh, uh, it's it's is so new, but something that's becoming more and more common throughout the entire country. Well, it sounds like there's so many exciting breakthroughs in this field, and I want to thank you so much for coming in and sharing this perspective because I don't think many people in our lay audience have any idea what a pediatric anesthesiologist is. No, absolutely. I'm, ha- I'm happy to do it and happy to uh, chat and uh, educate folks about uh, the importance of pediatric anesthesia. Thanks again for coming in. My guest has been Dr. Joseph Resti, Assistant Professor of Anesthesiology at Upstate Medical University, specializing in pediatric anesthesiology. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Thank you, Linda. Poet Elizabeth Brule Farrell believes in the healing power of words. She gives us a powerful glimpse into life with a disability in her short poem, The First Time Ordering a Wheelchair. We always took connecting flights, cheaper, and a challenge to run as fast as we could to get to the gate on time with exhilarated laughter. Though my appearance does not yet give me away, to order a wheelchair seems a betrayal to my belief that I could just imagine becoming well and it would happen. Is it giving up when I press the button saying, yes, I need a wheelchair? Or is it grace in accepting a new view of who I am, letting go of the old image and being glad that a thing with wheels can go faster than I can, allowing someone else to push me along, saying thank you with a smile and meaning it. Thank you for joining us for HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Please join us again next week. If you'd like to listen again to tonight's show, you can find a podcast of it on iTunes. I'm Linda Cohen. Thanks so much for listening.